Last week we were looking at the why of giving. We're remembering there that Paul was collecting money for the poor Christians who were in Jerusalem. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And the Corinthians, this church in Corinth, had promised to contribute towards this. So Paul was writing to them to encourage them to follow through on their promise. To give generously and eagerly. Especially in response to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. So that you through his poverty might become rich. It is the cross of Jesus, as we've been celebrating this morning in our time of communion, that should motivate us and move us to be people who give. And give generously and graciously. But giving carries with it a kind of risk. Especially a risk in terms of our church. Because if our giving is administered really well, then it can have such a positive impact on people and our community and ultimately on God's kingdom. But if our giving is mishandled, either through greed or through negligence or naivety, then it can destroy our work and our reputation in this world. So in this letter, Paul gives us some practical details, some really kind of down-to-earth details about how our giving should be administered. And we're going to have a look at them this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16, verse, down to chapter 9 and verse 5. So chapter 8 and verse 16 of 2 Corinthians. I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honour the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. In addition, we are sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous. And now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honour to Christ. Therefore show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you. So that the churches can see it. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints. For I know your eagerness to help. And I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians. Telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give. And your enthusiasm has stirred most of them into action. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow. But you may be ready 
as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Clearly from this this passage we can see that Paul believed that churches, Christian churches, should be involved in collecting and distributing money. For example, he taught that churches should financially support those who are devoting their time and energy to work among them. For example, he wrote to Timothy that the elders, who that's the church leaders, who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour. Especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. And in his earlier letter to the Corinthians he wrote that the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Not that Paul always took advantage of this. In fact, one of the criticisms that we'll see in this letter of Paul from this church is that he wouldn't accept their money. Now, as we'll see later in this letter, Paul had his reasons for not accepting their money. But he still believed in this biblical principle. Paul also believed that churches should support God's work in other parts of this world. For example, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, the the letter to the Philippians, is basically a thank you letter to thank them for their support of his missionary work over many years. For example, in chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, he says this, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So they were were supporting him in his work of preaching the gospel elsewhere. In our church here, we try and put some of these principles into practice by giving Maggie a little bit of support for her work and helping her meet her needs. As well as giving a 10% or ministry offering to people like Nick and Bernie who work in Gorey. Or Joanna who shares the gospel with children through CEF in this county. Or through organisations like the Radio Bible Class or the UCB. Trying to support the wider aspect of Christian work in this world. But it was a third kind of giving that Paul was talking about here. Not the support of workers in our church, not just the support of workers who are working for God elsewhere, but of giving to those who are suffering in poverty. His contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem, as Paul writes about in Romans chapter 15. And he believed that that was also a really crucial, a really important ministry of our church. Now today, of course, individually, we can give personally through many different charities, many different organisations, and I hope that you do, and I hope that's really important for us to be involved in that. But it's still a very clear biblical principle that we as a church community together should be involved in collecting and distributing money to people in desperate need. It's one of the calls that God has given to us, one of the purposes 
book, in the book of James, we're going to come into that in, in, in our Connect, our youth Bible study. James chapter 1 verse 27 says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted from this world. So caring for people in need in our world is an important part of what we should be doing as, as Christians. That's why we as a church get behind and support some things like the Christian the Christmas shoebox appeal every November and December. That's why we give to support ministries, organizations like Barnabas, who support Christians, especially in the persecuted areas of this world, or Tear Fund, an aid agency that couples with sharing the gospel and also reaching out and giving practical support and aid. But as we do this, it's really important that we're careful in this. Did you notice in verse 21 what Paul wrote in chapter 8? Paul wrote here, we are taking pains to do what is right. He was going to great lengths, putting in lots of effort, lots of time, to make sure that he collected and distributed this money Properly. They did it right. And I think that's because Paul knew the potential that money had, not just for good, but also for bad. A couple of years ago, I think it was a couple of, maybe a year and a half ago, we were looking at Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6 and 10. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. That love of money is such a powerful force that can pull us away from living for for God and to all sorts of problems. A few years ago we saw that in the Irish charity sector. Remember the number of scandals that hit the Irish charities? Including the the top-up scandal? When a whole load of uh, public funds were being used to, to boost executive salaries and top up their pensions and stuff like that. As a result, people's trust in all charities was seriously implicated. Even some of them who had nothing to do with it. Their funding was Im- impacted by that. At, at the time, some of the country's leading charities claimed that their donations dropped by about 40%. Because people were, were misusing, mishandling the, the funding. And it's not just secular charities that have been guilty of that. Churches have not been immune to these sorts of problems. In 2011, six years ago, in Virginia, in the US, a Mr. T. Lee was arrested for embezzling more than $700,000 from the missionary chapter of his church. Must have been a well off church. Also in that year, a trio of thieves stole nearly $600,000 from St. Isidore's Church in California. A year earlier, 2010, a Texan woman called Luanne Aponte stole more than a million dollars from her church and her non-profit childcare services. But I think the biggest one was the fraudulent behaviour of those in charge of the Baptist Foundation of Arizona. It was a church-affiliated charity and it, and it went into bankruptcy in 1999 with a loss of over 
$500 million of investors' funds, of Christians who had invested in it. And the shocking thing is, these aren't isolated incidents. According to a report from the Centre for the Study of Global Christianity, it's estimated that of the total amount of money given by Christians to to churches and to Christian parachurch organisations, 6% of that will be stolen. Of all the money that was given by Christians, 6% will be stolen. Which equates to, if that estimate is right, equates to $50 billion a year is stolen. More than all of the money that's given to worldwide mission is stolen from churches. And even that's not the full story as many accounting accounting fraud experts estimate that 95% of church fraud goes undetected or unreported. It's a shocking reality, isn't it? And the full impact of this is not just felt in the lost revenue, not even in the loss of help and support that this money can give, but even more so on the destructive impact that these situations can have on God's people and God's reputation in this world. So no wonder Paul was so careful in how he handled this gift. And no wonder how we need to be exceptionally careful how we handle money as a church. So what kind of practical steps did Paul put in place to ensure that what he did was right? I think there's three of them that I can see very clearly in this passage. First of all, Paul wrote that he wanted, he wrote this letter or this part of this letter because he wanted them to be ready, as I said you would be. He'd been telling the Christians in Macedonia about the generosity of this church in Achaia. Their desire to be involved in this collection. Actually, that had been stirring them up to also being generous. So he really didn't want to turn up and find that they'd put nothing aside for this appeal. Because in that case, then they would kind of feel obliged to give. Just kind of to save face. And it would be given grudgingly, as Paul says at the, at the end of our reading. So instead, he wanted them to do what he'd suggested in his first letter to this church. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Paul wanted this church to get organised about their giving. Each Sunday, when they met together to worship the Lord, he wanted them to contribute to this collection so that when they arrived, it would be all prepared. It would be all ready. It would be ready as a generous gift, as I said, not grudgingly given. Sometimes I think that we, we kind of have this idea when we're thinking about last week about how our giving needs to be eager and willing and generous, that that should be somehow a kind of spontaneous, instant gift in response to people's needs. And that can be great. But here Paul re- reminds us that it's good to get organised about our giving. Both our personal giving and also our giving as a church. 
So whether we give through the box at the back of our church for our offerings, or through bank-to-bank transfer, or whatever it is, it's good for every single one of us to get into the habit of giving. Of sharing the resources that God has given to us with other people who are in need. Not because we have to. Not because we're expected to. Not because anybody else will know how much we give or we have been told that we need to give a set amount. Nothing to do with that as we were thinking about last week. And certainly not doing it because we feel guilty if we don't. But we should give, be organised in regularly giving out of a response to and a reflection of all that we have received from God. That wonderful grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So get organised. Set a budget. Get into the habit of giving. Secondly, Paul was willing to be open and transparent about this fund. He wanted to do what was right, verse 21, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. Of course, what mattered to him most of all was what God thought about his handling of this money. His first and foremost desire was that he would work in such a way that he would be following God's will, reflecting God's standards, expressing God's heart, and ultimately bringing glory to God's name. That was his ultimate desire. In handling money, Paul's priority was exactly the same as every other aspect of his life. As he says in chapter 5 and verse 9 of this letter, so we make it our goal to please him. And in our church, our goal should be to please the Lord. Not just in these beautiful songs of praise and worship, but also in everything else that we do as a church community. Even the practical, down-to-earth kind of things like handling our money. We need to be seeking to honour the Lord. But at the same time, Paul was keen to do what was right also in the eyes of men, in the eyes of other people. Now, clearly Paul didn't mean that we should be kind of boasting or showing everybody what we should be giving. Paul was not encouraging us to show off how much we give. Or as we distribute our funds. Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 6. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. As the hypocrites do in the synagogue and on the streets. You always have to smile when you read that bit, don't you? Can you imagine playing your trumpet as you you put your money in the box? But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In our personal giving, we should be as private as possible. Ideally, our personal giving should just be between us and God. So nobody else can know. Why is that? Well, because it protects our motives. It ensures that we're giving genuinely because we want to give and and express our praise and and our gratitude to God and we're not trying to show off in front of others. We're not trying to get an improper reward for our giving from other people, from the reputation in front of others. 
So in our private giving, we should be, in our personal giving, we should be doing it privately, secretly. Nobody knows how much you put in the box. Nobody knows what you do in your bank-to-bank transfer as much as possible. But it does mean, what Paul was meaning here, is that as a church community, we should be willing to at some level open up our giving and our handling of money to be transparent, to invite some level of scrutiny in how we handle this money. To let others see that we're acting with integrity and honesty and genuine love. Paul said here, we want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. Paul didn't want people to think that he was pocketing the proceeds. Or that there was some underhand dealings about this. That he was taking his cut, he was taking his commission from this. Of course, he couldn't stop people from accusing him of this. People will accuse us of all sorts of things. But he wanted to do everything he could to prevent people from getting the wrong idea about this. Now that wasn't just Paul looking for an easy ride. It wasn't Paul looking kind of self-preservation idea. He knew that criticism, opposition, persecution went with following Christ in this world. He knew that. He experienced that. But he didn't want this handling of this money to give ammunition to God's enemies. To turn something that had the potential for so much good and turn it into something that would cause division or that would discredit God's name or even dissuade people from turning to Christ. He said this in in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9 and 12. We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. This was Paul's overriding desire. He desperately wanted to do things right so that he would never raise a barrier to somebody coming to Christ. That nobody would ever be able to say, genuinely, properly say, well, if that's what Christianity is all about, I want nothing to do with it. So we should welcome the scrutiny of others in how we handle money as a church together. This is why we publish our accounts every year and present them at our members' meetings. I'm in the business of getting that organised right now. That's why we're happy to register with the Charities Regulatory Authority. Happy, maybe in inverted commas, because it's just, a, just another thing to have to do. But it's the right thing to do. To provide you with all of the information that we require. You can even check up on, our, on, on their website and you can see our little, uh, the items of, of the things that we have to, the information that we have to give to them on that. We want to be upfront and open about how we collect, how we distribute our money. Because we are seeking to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. This verse has always been the kind of guiding verse, verse 21 of chapter 8, for us as a church and how we handle our money. But thirdly and finally, to ensure this, Paul set up a system of accountability 
although Paul was at the forefront of this collection, it was his vision and his passion, he didn't think that he should just do it on his own. In fact, he worked hard to make sure that he wasn't the only person who was handling this money. He'd written before them, uh, before in his first letter of chapter 16, I will give letters of introduction to the men that you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. And in this section that we read, he wrote about, about three men that he was sending to visit you in advance. To organise this generous gift. They would make sure that everything was ready so that when Paul came, he would need to get involved in those things. And one of them was chosen by the churches to accompany them to carry this offering, to be their representative. And in the end, actually, Paul was accompanied not by one or two, but by seven people. Representatives from the different churches where he collected this money as they took the gift to Jerusalem. Acts 20 lists them. Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, so that's one of the churches. Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica. Gaius from Derbe. Timothy also. Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. People from different churches, different areas, to make sure that in the handling of this money, this was done properly. This was done right. So that people in those churches and in the wider, they could have complete confidence that what he was doing with this money was the right thing. And the importance of all of this can be seen in the kind of people that Paul chose for this job. This is what we read about in this section in, in a bit more detail. Verse 23, Titus, first of all, his partner and fellow worker. Somebody that Paul worked alongside with in his missionary work. He was sending him. Why? Because, well, he is the same concern I have for you, Paul says. God had put into his heart a real deep concern for the Corinthians. And he was passionate about this collection. So he's coming to you with much enthusiasm on his own initiative. He's not coming, dragging his heels, saying, I suppose I need to go here. He's excited about it because he's passionate about it because he believes in what this collection is all about. Secondly, there was a brother who was praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. An effective gospel preacher. He's going to be the representative. And then thirdly, there was the one called Paul. Paul called our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous. That he's committed to this. That he is faithful in his walk with the Lord. These are the three men that Paul chose for this role. Men with a proven track record of passion for God. And passion for the gospel. Of compassion and enthusiasm and faithfulness. These are men of high caliber. And that demonstrates the importance of their role. It's also a reminder of the importance of how careful we need to do, be in choosing people to administer the finances in our church. Because that principle of shared accountability is crucially important for us as a church community. So that we can do everything right in the eyes of, of the Lord and of people. That's why we have two people, I don't know if you've ever noticed, counting our money is in the collection box. 
why we always, if you've ever received a cheque from our church to pay for something you've, you've bought for church, it's also always got two signatures on it. So one person can't take the money out themselves. It's why we have six trustees, and we're delighted to have the six trustees who carefully oversee all of the handling of our money that we collect in our church. So these are Paul's practical guidelines. As we, as a church, collect and distribute money, we need to do this carefully. We need to do organising, giving with transparency, organising or giving with transparency and accountability. Now maybe you're sitting here thinking, come on Andrew, look at the time, because look at the time. Uh, Because it sounds all a bit too structured, a bit too controlled. Maybe it sounds a bit too business-like. Maybe we should get Philip up here to do this talk instead of me, because he'd do a better job. We might wonder if we really need to worry about these sorts of things in church. Especially after the kind of service we've had, hearing the story of God at work in people's lives, hearing God speaking into our hearts and, and, and getting us excited again about what he has done. Do we need to get down to this level? Well, I think it's really important to remind ourselves why Paul did all of this. Why did Paul go to such lengths to administer this gift properly? Look at verse 19, just in this way we, we do finish, of chapter 8. Paul's answer was that we administer this gift in order to honour the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. What was Paul's motivation in handling all this money, working it out and building in accountability and transparency? It was love. Paul was motivated by love. Love for other people, willingness to help, eagerness to help, but ultimately love for God. Desire to honour the one who saved him. And this is what should motivate us. We should be willing to do all we can to give generously and administer our money carefully. Because we love those people who are in desperate need, whether it's material need or whether it's spiritual need. But most of all, because we love the Lord. And we want to honour Him in everything we do. We want to honour the One who loved us and gave Himself for us.